National League Championship. They have beaten the Padres 4-3, and they celebrate on their home turf as the Phillies of the 2022 NL Champs. From WHYY and Billy Penn, this is Hidden Season, a Philadelphia Phillies podcast. My name is Justin Clue. I write for Baseball Prospectus and Billy Penn. And with me is Liz Rocher of Yahoo Sports. Hello, Liz. Yo. It is a blustery autumnal weekend foretelling the arrival of a horrifying early autumn (laughs) storm featuring wind gusts of up to 40 miles an hour and howling maelstroms over population centers on the eastern coast. What perfect time to celebrate a polarizing figure from Philadelphia Phillies history, almost as though nature itself is heralding the arrival of the narrative. Will Philadelphia Phillies fans boo Scott Rowland, their former star, on the day he is inducted onto the Wall of Fame at Citizens Bank Park? Elizabeth, we talked about Scott Rowland earlier when this ceremony was first announced. It has finally arrived. And now we get to talk about it all over again. Isn't that fun? (laughs) That's how time works, baby. (laughs) Goes forward. Uh, Before we get into it, I mean, let's just reiterate. What are your general Scott Rowland feelings? Like, you're someone who I don't believe was totally plugged into Philly's world uh, when the actual Scott Rowland era was happening. Uh, yeah. And and uh, you're aware of the drama that uh, that came out of it and how things obviously ended. I was a Phillies fan at this point, but I was very much a child. And I do feel if I was maybe even five years older, I'd have more or stronger feelings about this. I remember how I felt at the time. It was more just sad and confused. Like, why can't this guy who's our really good player want to be here? I don't understand why this is happening. Looking back and having read, you know, everybody's... Uh, sides at the time and then you know everybody's feelings now which Jason Stark's article about this that he just put out largely centers on how everybody's ready to move on including Larry Boa who is viewed as the center of uh, Scott Rowland's contention for being here in Philadelphia early in his career so in general what is your what is your take on Scott Rowland how should he be appreciated in Philly's history should the fans boo him this weekend (laughs) what's your what's your deal well, as someone who was living in Maine and not interested in baseball, um, when all a lot of this is going down, you are who we want to talk to about. Yep, this. exactly. But <laughs> as a Phillies fan, as a com- as a commentator on the team, I do have an opinion. Um, but I also recognize it's not one anyone should pay attention to unless they, you know, like me, <laughs> unless they think I'm interesting. Um, That's hitting season from WHYY and Billy Penn. Thanks for listening. Don't listen to us. Uh, <laughs> I I would hope that they won't boo him. As Larry Boa said in that article, which I thought was really great, actually, I thought it was uh, Scott Rowland had declined to take part in it, which yes. I which I thought was interesting. But um, Jason Stark took that all in stride and you know, Bo is ready to move on. Um, he, I was really struck by the fact that he's, he's like, I was wrong. I was wrong back then. I expected yeah. them to just play the same way that I did. And that was wrong. And I see that now. And that more than anything else, feels really good to me because I just, if for any other reason that Larry Bo is an important figure and you want him to understand where he went wrong. As far as Scott Rowland goes, I really, I hope people don't, boo him Philadelphia has become I mean saying that we're 
softer isn't the word, but we're, I think, more thoughtful as a fan base now. We don't react entirely just from the <laughs> from the feeling center of our brain. There's a little bit of... There's I a can't believe I'm of, saying this, but it feels like there's almost some nuance. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly... I'm, I'm trying not to say that too much, but, you know, fandoms turn over. People who were who were kids then are now the main fans of the team. They're the ones with, I mean, they're us, the, vo- we, with the voices out in the world. We say that, but then somebody's going to throw a tire iron on the field or something. when he, Oh yeah, of <laughs> course. But you know what? That's still, that's still who we are. Like that. It's the important thing is to note that Philadelphia fans in general have gotten more nuance. Winning a world series and a super bowl has changed us in ways that I don't think people really even want to get into. But well, I think I, that's the other half of this is that you got on the one hand Boa, who is very much deemed as you know a big part of why Roland left and the culture he was trying to set, uh, and uh, but also the success and the many years that now insulate us from the Scott Roland era are you know I feel like they've got, they've gone a long way in soothing people's misery about situations like this where it's like yeah we had that happen instead of winning instead of a world series we lost our our stud young rookie third baseman to uh to to the cardinals and you know that that is that sucks Mm -hmm. but then you you look back and you're like yeah no the phillies have been to the world series multiple times since then they won a world series uh we've had a bunch of fun seasons in philadelphia a bunch of not fun seasons uh but yeah just even since he left in uh, 2002, you know, there's been a lot that's changed on the Phillies and Philadelphia sports landscape. There's been a lot of reasons to just forget about this this stuff. But I again, the people who lived through it and the people who built those grudges, if they want to hang on to them, they are entitled to do that. Yeah, uh, that I think that you know that's totally fair. I would think it was. I would just in general think like, eh, you really just don't need to boo them. Like you don't need to. You don't need to give the people watching that ammo. You know, I guess is what I'm thinking because this is something that. We we could be over by now. If you're not, yeah. fine. But, like, we could be over this. And Phillies fans aren't bores. We, we're, a f- we're a long way from a, a, a rando vomiting on a child. <laughs> Which still yep. happened. Yes, it did. <laughs> we're yeah. a long way from from all of that behavior. And it's one of those things where he's coming to be honored. He's He's in the the Baseball Hall of Fame now. He's a figure from the Phillies past. And that experience, you know, regardless of what it was at the moment, is part of the journey that the that the team has made to be here. Like that, I hope people understand that. That's something that I, I've thought about a lot recently. That when we look back at the Phillies, we kind of, I at least try to remember that Everything that's happened has led us to be here. If Scott Rowland had stayed, we still might not have a World Series. I mean, I choose to yeah. think of it the other way. Where, oh, yeah, of course. Uh, but... there's, a, there's, a, there's a grizzled Scott Rowland with a big like gray beard playing third base with Jimmy Rollins, Chase Utley, and Ryan Howard when they win the World Series. Is that oh, likely? I would have no. That. Is he still playing third base at that point? Absolutely not. But it's still, yeah, it's a fun thing. I like to think about that playing out with shares if I could turn back time playing over. That's been my, my therapy for, for missing song. out on that era. But uh, just for context, I mean, yeah, everybody knows Scott Rowland, he hit 282 with an 877 OPS and 150 <laughs> homers for the Phillies over seven seasons. He was the Agreed. 1997 National League Rookie of the Year. He won three gold gloves at third base he was a cornerstone of the future why wouldn't he be 
he comes up in any organization, that's exactly what they're going to think. However, there are a lot of people who remember Roland as the prospect who didn't want to be here, who feuded with manager Larry Boa, who ultimately called St. Louis baseball heaven after he was traded there, and people got mad. People are mad. And then when we <laughs> talked about this when it was announced months ago, I found out people are madder than I thought. Still. Yeah. But in my mind, he's not J.D. Drew. He's not even Danny Tartable. Who, like, you know, people hold a grudge against, but he didn't actually even do anything wrong on purpose. (laughs) He just got hurt and never played. Uh, Roland just, you know, it's it's easier to say now that uh, that he wasn't just a player for the Phillies. He was their future. And, you know, I get people have strong feelings about that. He was was our star. He was a homegrown star. We finally had one. But Boa's style and the Phillies organization, which at the time Roland correctly criticized for not being willing to spend enough to be better, didn't fit with him. And he also didn't like the spotlight. You know, and I, that I, I, I have always said I, I relate to now looking back where he was, uh, he's like, I don't want to have to do that. I don't want to do this. But it, it, the stuff like being called like, hey, you have to come to this fundraiser. You're obligated. It's part of your job. It is. It's part of your job as a major leaguer. So like that aspect of it, like, sorry, but you got to just yeah. do that. Put a smile Roland on your would face go so far. and go to the children's hospital. <laughs> Roland would go so far. I, I believe I saw him say, like, oh, the cell phone is the worst invention ever. <laughs> and like, you know, again, he's got a I point. But his, but he just didn't want to be like reachable all the time, which again I totally get. And you also just more, more to the point, totally get why that's not going to jive with Larry Boa, who you're right, it is very gratifying to see a level of growth like that. I had coaches like like that growing up, not like exactly like Larry Boa, but just in that, in the broadest sense, that like gruff, mean, I'm going to shout it into you, do play the game my way kind of coaches. And you know what? A lot of time it doesn't work. It just doesn't work. But that's like there's a mentality among coaches who think like I can scream some talent into this guy. And I don't even just I'm like it wasn't just me. It was just like that was their coaching style. That was like how they did it. Like I'm I'm the toughest guy here. I'm the angriest guy here. And eventually you guys are going to care about this game as much as I do. And you're disregarding the fact like clearly you care about the game or you wouldn't be here. Like I'm a player from an, I'm not just a player. I'm a person from another generation. You don't even understand, seem to understand that, but I'm also not really, you know, understanding your perspective. And it was just like some butting heads from two stubborn people who both seem to have gotten over it. So I think that's the healthy thing to do. I hope the fans can reflect that. Uh, And I think uh, there's this quote from Scott Rowland's Sabre bio written by Tim Odzer. Uh, from his teammate on the Reds, Johnny Gomes, who said, you know what, WWJD, what would Jesus do? Here it's what would Scott do. He doesn't argue with the umpires. He runs every single ball out. He makes great plays. He makes routine plays. He gets the runner in when he needs to get him in. He gets the runner over when he needs to get him over. He just plays the game exactly how it should be played. You never second guess anything he does. And, you know, that's that's like the definition of Scott Rowland at the end of his yeah. career. And, and for most people like who watched him, uh, be honored earlier this year it's it's his his Phillies career is just kind of like a blink <laughs> you know like most people think of him as the Cardinals and Reds player uh that uh went to the postseason his Philly chapter I think really just matters most to here in Philadelphia and uh yeah we'll see what happens but <laughs> I mean come on I, I don't I don't necessarily think people have to boo for him but if he does get booed at this it will be funny. Like, come on, that is. Oh funny. my god! And you know what? <laughs> you have to hope if that happens that Scott Rowland has enough of a sense of humor. I hope so. To appreciate it, because it it's it's kind of pathetic, but it's also a, a tribute to how much he meant to people, in a way. 
You know, you mm-hmm. don't get that angry if you didn't care that much. And yeah, they cared exactly. about him as a player. They cared about the team. And if they're still hurt by that, they should get over it. But, you know, it's because they cared. And I hope he, if he does get booed, even just a little bit, he understands that that, that is a sign of respect from us. You're a, you're a Phillies player. We're not, it's not that type of booing. We're not booing you like we boo the Mets. It's, it's different. Yeah. It's more, I mean, some people would, might be booing because they're mad, but some people will be booing because it's almost a salute. I was because at Citizens Bank do. Park once when uh, it was like the, uh, an umpire's was retiring. I don't know. I, I've never seen anything like this before. I guess it happens. But an umpire was retiring, I think, and it was his last game in Philadelphia. And like they let him talk to the crowd with a microphone. And he said, like, I, I always love coming to Philadelphia. Can you give me one last boo yes I remember this. <laughs> he like asked to be booed by the fans in the stands and we did we booed him and he was like yeah and you know it's, it's kind of like that where it's like where people you know, should yeah, be sometimes... like that it's what we do best <laughs> yeah like you know sometimes it's malicious sometimes we're genuinely full of rage but other times <laughs> it's like yeah this is our this is our trait this is our calling card and so like here you go this is your send off so we're filled. yeah i think we may about not that be moment a lot that way totally anymore but we're still going to play the role because it's what you expect of us yep so that'll be an interesting weekend, uh, but it's already been a pretty interesting week. Uh, the Phillies managed to take a series from Atlanta, a series that John Stolness and I on a previous episode were pretty much just writing off as after that uh, losing three or four to the Braves at home. We said, let's just look at those three games in Atlanta as three losses. Not because that's necessarily what we think is going to happen, uh, but it does easier. feel like that's what's going to happen. And it's easier <laughs> to just let's accept three losses now so that later we're not as miserable. It's the perfect plan, really. Yes, well, it the is, Phillies, honestly. The Phillies turned that on its head by winning two out of three in Atlanta. Uh, you can throw any kind of caveats you want at that. Well, the Braves already close to playoff spot. How hard are they really playing? Well, probably hard enough. And it, it still feels good to beat them uh, two out of three games in their stadium. That's... You know, it's not it's not exactly tit for tat, but it was better than the alternative. You did see Spencer Strider utterly annihilate the Phillies oh. once again. <laughs> the Phillies uh, have that's nothing. something <laughs> they have nothing. And and uh, well, well, we'll talk about that in a minute. But um, yeah, as far as like the series itself goes, I just want to talk about how uh, pretty much the, the biggest play of the series. And that was Nick Castellanos mm. uh, running a running to catch an Orlando Arcia foul ball. That, you know, it was a situation with a runner on third with uh, less than two outs. And everyone in the ballpark, including Castellanos, knew if he caught that, yeah, the batter would be out, but the runner could still tag up and come home. So everyone was screaming, drop it. Castellanos decided, because of what a voice in his head, his words, told him to do, uh, was catch it. He turned around, fired the ball home, made a perfect throw, got the runner out at the plate, and the Phillies wound up winning the game. Um, that's not how that game goes recently. That game goes, uh, uh, you know, exactly the way you think it does. <laughs> yeah. It feels like more often that's, that's the kind of game the Phillies has been losing lately. So it was great to see them win the game. It was great to see obviously Castellanos make a great play. He's undergoing a bit of a, another Renaissance after a recent dip where he's uh, hit a bunch of home runs lately. He made that play. Um, you know, that was, it was good to see. But uh, the thing I wanted to talk about was something a Braves fan said in response to that, that haunted me a little bit. Who, who said uh, sending the runner on that play was still the right move uh, because, you know, I think that makes sense. And they said it was the right move because if you make the Phillies make a play, chances are it's going to work out for you. Do you feel like that that's true? 
obviously Castellanos proved like in that moment it that was not. But like in general, do you feel like that's something that other teams playing the Phillies see as an advantage? I think maybe. I think so. What do you think? <laughs> I'm try I'm just, you uh, know. Yeah, I think what this is referencing is that the Phillies are they're a contender. They're a team full of good players. They have obviously sat in the top wildcard spot in the National League for a while, and that hasn't been for no reason. That being mm. said, of the best teams in the National League, they are wobblier. They are <laughs> yeah, less consistent. That's completely true. They have fluctuated. We talked recently about how they haven't had, feel it feels like, one strength that's been a strength the whole year. It was like the period where the bullpen was the strongest, then there was the rotation was the strongest. Now there's no pitchers you could rely on, and the offense was carrying them. Now we're here in September, and I don't know, what would you call their strength? Because they're kind of off that hot streak they were on in August, I think we can say. Uh, they've lost a few series since then. They've lost a lot more one-run games since then. That, that used to be an anomaly for them, that they had such a good record in one-run games. That's out the window. They're almost 500, I believe, in one-run games now. So I don't know what you would necessarily call it. Vibes? Maybe the vibes yeah, are I the strongest just, part of the Phillies right that now. That really is. I mean, they have... I mean, they obviously have a lot of talent, but I think what happened last year was the vibes meeting with the talent and creating a new entity that carried the Phillies to where they needed to be. And I don't see any reason why that can't happen this year. They're all more experienced. Most of them have been through it. Like there, a lot of a lot of guys returning from last year's team are still here. There, it is. I mean, I hate that it's. I don't hate that it's vibe based, but it is very precarious. But I I have faith in them continuing to keep a good attitude. I do. Like, I, I no point do I worry that the clubhouse is going to get down, that everyone's going to be upset, that no one will know what to do. Like, they have enough guys who have their feet on the ground to be able to be like, all right, this sucked. Let's We'll get him again tomorrow. You know, we, we could have won this game, but we didn't. We can win tomorrow. There's no reason we can't. And you know, I that in and of itself is like a huge thing. The psychological, like players talk about it a lot. Being in the playoffs is, is different. You know, I, I don't necessarily believe coming into the ninth inning of a game as a closer is always as different as they say, but playing in the playoffs is different. Players say that, you know, once they're finished a game, they are, the adrenaline has been flowing through them for so long that they just sort of flop over. <laughs> They're just like empty, you know, they've yeah. just been pressing, not even not pressing, like you'd say, but like just com constantly aware of the how meaningful the game is and all of the fans hopes and dreams and all the media from everywhere is there. You know, the playoffs are tough and getting through it psychologically and not being damaged is is a tough thing. And I think even more than last year. The Phillies are well positioned to handle all of that. You know, we've got Nick Castellanos like being an active clubhouse presence this year. And I think that's been one of the most important developments we could have seen. And I think it's just it's flowed right under the surface. But like the article about uh, Johan Rojas from or like Castellanos and Rojas from uh, Matt Gelb a few days ago was really great. You know, it was it was all about the, you know. Rojas unbuttoning the, the, the button to feel more free. And I'm like, and Castellanos encouraged him to do that. I, I really think that him coming into his own is 
is like a huge strength for the Phillies, which we saw, which we've seen like at the plate. He's like the complete dude. And at this point, I mean, I've kind of maintained this mentality for the past uh, two years at this point where every win is a win and I don't even really need to dwell on Mm -hmm. the long-term forecasting that you could draw from it. Like, yeah, but this happened and it might mean in the future that blah, blah, blah. Yeah, I mean, it might, but that was a win and that's kind of how we got to approach this because of, you know, the Phillies are a wobbly team. They're going to go into the playoffs. They're rarely going to be the favorite and they're going to have to do what they did last year. Uh, yeah, and it's the reason that situation with Castellanos throwing out the runner was, you know, so stressful and everyone was saying drop it. And uh, I was saying drop it. I wouldn't have gone for that catch. I didn't want him to either. He turned around, made a perfect throw and it worked out. And that's awesome. You want to believe your, your, your team is capable of that, that Castellanos is capable of that. And he is. He just proved that he is. So that's great. Uh, go, But like the reason was it just felt like, you know, you put a Braves runner in scoring position. Essentially, you gotta you gotta knock your automatic extra inning base runner in because you know the Braves are knocking that runner in. The Braves yeah. are gonna get a run in starting with uh, you know the base is empty. You give them a, a bonus base runner as baseball does, which is starting to feel like a dumber and dumber rule. With oh the my clocks. god! I don't think we I don't think we need this anymore. I think we can at least push it back to like the twelfth inning. You start getting an extra base runner or something. Hmm. Uh, but that being said, that's what created that situation. That's why it felt like yeah, the Phillies lose this game because they just they lose these games every time the 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 team they're playing gets a gift especially a team like the Braves that doesn't need gifts to beat you you know they're gonna they're gonna use that and they're probably they're gonna beat you they're gonna take advantage of that going into Wednesday's game the Phillies had scored 497 runs after putting a runner uh, or runners in scoring position that is fewer than the Padres Rockies and Red Sox none of whom are going to the playoffs they they were hitting 259 with runners in scoring position which is a lower batting average with runners in scoring position than the Rockies, Nationals, and Red Sox. They have a lower line drive percentage with runners in scoring position than 20 other teams, including the Padres, Pirates, White Sox, Cardinals, and Royals. If you shrink that number down to just September, you guessed it, it's even worse. The Phillies were 0 for 6 with runners in scoring position in in extra innings this month, and in 71 plate appearances this year, during which the Phillies had runners in scoring position in extra innings, they'd hit 214 with 17 RBI and one double. The Braves have hit 290 with 13 RBI in 35 plate appearances with runners in scoring position in extras. Smaller sample size, but if I had to guess, I'd say most Braves games are over before the ninth inning anyway. So with the Braves automatically <laughs> getting a runner in scoring position to start the 10th, you have to score or you will lose. Trey Turner grounding into a double play seems to be the death sentence for the Phillies, but the Phillies managed to pull it out thanks to some, you know, thanks to, thanks to some walks. You know, like there was... It was a good game. It ended well for the Phillies. I'm glad it happened. Uh, I don't think we have to talk about what we learned from that moment. I think we got to just, you know, this, and this is kind of my point. Bring on the mindset I'm describing where it's just like, yeah, they they won. You know, was it a moment where everyone thought, oh, he's doing the wrong thing. And then it worked out. Yeah. But, you know, that's good. That's what you want. You want a team that starts looking like that to go into the playoffs. Because, you mm-hmm. know, the Phillies, have they have lost a bit of that momentum they had in, in August, and you want to see them get that back in these final, you know, 9-10 games because this is this is crunch time, man. This is when you want to be the hot team. That's why they were able to be successful last year. So, uh, yeah, the numbers are not in their favor, and they're not going to be, especially against the Braves, who are, for all intents and purposes, a perfect baseball team. <laughs> so you, you got to just take the wins where you can get them. Yeah. Now, the best team doesn't always win, though. 
Every time we say that, I always want to remind everyone, the best team doesn't always win. The Astros weren't the best yeah. team in baseball last year. The Phillies beat the best base, the best team in baseball last year. Or at least, no, I think That's the true. Dodgers were by record. But Yeah, one of the, two of the best, you know, the two best teams in the National <laughs> League, again, are, are the Braves and Dodgers. And if running into either of them, which you inevitably will, in the postseason as, an, as a National League contender... Being able to beat them is, yeah, that's that's a huge deal. But like you said, the play- playoffs are also different. And that's also where I'm kind of at mentally, where it's like, let's just get to the playoffs because then anything can happen. Anything can and you're happen. And you're not going to be thinking about losing three or four to the Braves uh, and, and like two of those three losses being very winnable games for the Phillies where, you know, if they go up like 2-0 on the Braves in a playoff series. That, that's yeah. just not going to matter anymore because it literally doesn't matter anymore. Exactly. You got to the playoffs. Now all that matters is what's in front of you. So mm-hmm. that's And the Phillies the can kind of, be that team. They could be that team for two weeks. That's all they need. Yeah. And that's the kind of team uh, that, that's the kind of team they have to be. Uh, they're going to be playing. You know, they, they're finished with the Braves, thankfully. And now we're on to the Mets. Now we're on to the Mets, who have taken a back seat narratively after uh, after the fire sale and after the readjustment of expectations. Let's say uh, they now play four games with the Mets at home, and the Phillies beat the Mets last night, five to four, in a game that always felt close but never quite got away from the Phillies. Uh, which again, that that was that was good. The story was once again Nick Castellanos, who went two for three with a home run and four RBI. And this is after he homered four times on a six-game road trip, and he has apparently hit a career-high RBI with 103 on the year so far, the first Phillies player to have 100 RBI in a season since Bryce Harper in 2019. Todd Zalecki tells us that Kyle Schwarber is up to 99, so the Phillies in all likelihood have two players with 100 RBI for the first time since Chase Utley and Ryan Howard in 2008. Yeah. Does it feel like with this team... There's stats that make you feel like they're the most mid-squad to ever mid, and then there's stats that make you think, is this the best team of all time? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Like, one thing that gives me a lot of faith in the Phillies is that they are weird. Like, you look at the Braves, and it's just like they're top in everything. The Phillies, it's a lot more interesting, and it's tougher to find out what they do well, what they need to improve on, because... Like, it's like someone is there, it's like an octopus at, you know, at a big console. Like, they're just knobs turning constantly. I really like that image, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) I'm all about knobs today. Yeah, all about the knobs turning. Pulling strings and, yeah. Well, and this start to the Mets series, which also featured a Ranger Suarez performance that lasted six and two-thirds innings in which he gave up five hits, four runs, and struck out six. Uh, former Daily News sports writer Les Bowen tweeted uh, during the Brave series, actually, that the Phillies don't have the pitching for a deep playoff run. That's a bit of unpleasant honesty. So a Suarez start <laughs> like last wrong, night. Really? <laughs> I yeah, I'll take a Suarez start like that. Like that's that. Yeah, it's yeah. not like oh, what a dominant start. Like well, he looked like he, he was he was good, and the offense backed him up, and it was fine, and he was good, and he went pitched into the seventh. Sure, yeah. it was a good Back start. Back into the I, rotation I guy. That. That's what you get. Sure. But at the same time, how do you feel about the idea that the Phillies don't have the pitching for a deep playoff run? I don't know how to argue against that at this point. Yeah, because they don't. (laughs) That's the problem. They have the offense to make it work. And I think they can. So, okay, I was going to say, do you think they don't have a deep playoff run in them? Oh, no, I think they do. But I think it's tougher than last year, at least, because they have a lot of they have more to overcome. You know, their offense has been pretty good for the past few months but like you need to make sure that there's at least one part of your game spinning at the top 
when you go into the playoffs. Mm-hmm. And if it continues to be the offense, that's great. But their rotation and is is distressing. You have to hope that the offense alone can overcome that because I don't know how much more there is left of the bullpen to ring out. You know what I mean? Like Kimbrell yeah. is is now that good period is long gone and all he does is give me Anjita. Like it's not that he's not winning, but it is frustrating and dangerous. And I was actually quite thrilled to see Jose um Alvarado. I think he closed it out last night. He did. And yes, yeah, he was very excited great. about that. And he sh- yeah, that was a that was a hell of a performance. And the kind of performance where the Phillies have really buckled lately. You used to be able to rely on guys like Kimbrell and Alvarado, and it wasn't as nerve-wracking. But we also knew when these guys came in that this is the kind of pitcher they are. They are Mm -hmm. hard throwers. They don't always have the best control. And guess what? It's late September. Everybody's arms are aching. And that that the one thing I would say in you know that is in the Phillies' favor when you say like, well, they don't have they don't have great pitching. How is their playoff run going to be very deep? Fair enough. But I do think this is an issue everyone is facing. Like, yeah, you know, Spencer Strider just shut down the Phillies. So, you know, you look at that. But the Braves pitching staff has been through a lot of struggles this year. It has certainly not been a strength of that team. And I would say everybody but, like, Milwaukee has pitching issues going into the playoffs. So I'm not as, you know, and, and, and this isn't even, like, widespread. Our concerns about the Phillies aren't even necessarily widespread. In watching the Cubs-Diamondbacks games, the broadcasters for the Cubs were talking about who would you rather face in a playoff series, and uh, they were saying how you're going, if you're going to Milwaukee or Philadelphia, you're facing really good starting pitching, and I'm just like, either these guys aren't watching the Phillies, or we have just kind of lowered the bar as far as what is this time of year really good pitching. Uh, so, you know, we'll see what happens, but I do feel like the playing field is, is a little more even there. But that being said, it's tough to have like a lot of confidence in this pitching staff right now as just like an observer, someone who's not in the clubhouse every day, but we've all been seeing their inability to get outs when they need them, their inability to hit the strike zone when they have to. I think Craig Kimball walked the bases loaded the other day. I feel like, didn't he? Like it, uh-huh. it's, it is not, a fun experience to watch the Phillies in a close game late. You know, you, you don't feel that that bit of like, oh, Kimbrel's coming in. That's all-star closer Craig Kimbrel coming into the game. You think, oh, boy, here we go. And, yeah, that's that's tough. So, you know, I, I think you're right, though. There are enough strengths here, and there are perhaps some reservoirs to tap into that uh, that the Phillies can obviously still make a deep postseason run. But right now the pitching is definitely a concern. Mm-hmm. Alvarado, like, I, I had until we started talking about it, Alvarado had slipped my mind and he's spent enough time on the uh, injured list and out of commission that if he's back, he'll be fresh. He'll be at least more fresh than anyone else in the bullpen. And that is that gives me some confidence seeing how he did last night. Um, And I, I think that Rob Thompson giving him the opportunity to do that was I mean, I don't know if I always expected that of him. But I think he is he's surprised me a lot with his with his lineup management um, and his willingness to make changes. I think at the beginning of the season, he wasn't necessarily into that. But as things went on, like he moved Castellanos to seventh and he's blossomed. He's actually moved people around and done things like that. Like that gives me confidence and him having confidence in Alvarado and like living up to that and proving he was right is nothing but great stuff for the bullpen because that 
I get that's where I'm concerned because the offense can keep the Phillies in it, but the game runs out at inning nine. They only have nine innings. <laughs> that's true. You heard it here first, folks. Baseball, <laughs> nine innings. Uh, well, yeah, we'll we'll see what happens as we move forward here. Hopefully, hopefully we see enough good pitching. I guess is is my is my hope that uh, that the team is able to put together enough starts, even like Suarez's start against the Mets, where it's like, yeah, he gave up some some hits and runs, but the team is good enough that they can back him up and they can outscore the Mets. You know, a team that is not good. Uh, and speaking of which. A uh, large, large article that pretty much closing the loop on the Mets for the regular season came out right at the start of this four-game set in Philadelphia, just talking about how they are a very expensive, uh, what, $445 million uh, payroll team, uh, most expensive team ever, they have crashed and burned, uh, what happened is essentially the article. Um, but before we get to that, I want to go back a couple weeks. Remember earlier this month, uh, back on September 7th, when Ken Rosenthal and Will Salmon of The Athletic wrote a feature on Tommy Pham. The thesis of which was, oh, you think Tommy Pham is a clubhouse cancer? Well, guess what? He's actually wonderful. Don't you <laughs> feel stupid for assuming a guy would, who would slap someone in public could be bad for a team? And Liz, when the trade deadline was here and we were talking about who the Phillies could acquire... Tommy Pham's name was floating around, and I think you, me, and John kind of unanimously were like, I want the Phillies to stay away from this guy. It's just not necessary. It wasn't like, you know, the main point of any of our arguments, but when you asked, do you think the Phillies should go for Tommy Pham, my answer was, you know what, it's not worth it. He brings in a ton of baggage and is, const and is constantly at the center of a swirl of drama. His fault or not, that's objectively true. I'm sorry, but it is. <laughs> and and you just, you'd rather not have to deal with that. And what this story was saying was, I mean, it, it's strange because I went back and reread it. It doesn't seem to do all the rehabbing that Rosenthal thinks it does. Yeah. Until two weeks later, yesterday, when we got another athletic feature, this one from Tim Britton and Will Salmon about how the $445 million Mets have not made the playoffs. It's a good read, but in both stories, a story about Tommy Pham having dinner with Francisco Lindor, and I believe other Mets veterans, uh, appears. Which was interesting. Like it's it's in the it's in the fam article, and then it's in this other article two weeks later, uh, where he, he, uh, fam is talking about the Mets' work ethic. Uh, this is from the "You Don't Know Fam" article. One day in early June, June over dinner, Fam talked with a few teammates, including star shortstop Francisco Lindor, about what the Mets needed to do in order to improve. Fam stressed the importance of simply working harder. Fam wasn't complaining about Lindor, and his gripe had more to do with the position player group in general. But per Fam's account, Lindor took the message to heart anyway. Lindor said, day in and day out, he works as hard as anybody I've seen in my career, to the point where I told him that before he left, hey man, thank you for teaching me how to work hard again. This is from Britton and Salmon's Mets epitaph that appeared uh, more recently. When Lind with Lindor, Pham felt comfortable sharing something that roamed in his mind after observing how often some players in the clubhouse played games like pool. Pham says he told Lindor, Out of all the teams I played on, this is the least hardworking group of position players I've ever played with. Opinions varied on the subject. Per Pham's recollection, the players at the restaurant seemed receptive to what he had to say. In further explaining his comment later, he added that he held a lot of respect for the work ethics of the team's leaders, Lindor, Alonzo, and Brandon Nimmo. And Lindor told the Athletics' Ken Rosenthal that before Pham left in a trade to the Arizona Diamondbacks, Lindor said to him, thank you for teaching me how to work hard again. Now, 
the thing that has been taken from this and people have run with has been the quote that appears in the more recent story and does not appear in the earlier story, which yeah. is when Fam says, this is the least hardworking team I've ever played with. Yeah. And that quote is largely what people have taken from that story, and it's the quote that Mets players have been asked to respond to since the story came out. Buck Showalter said uh, on CBS uh, to a CBS sports reporter, Tommy is entitled to his opinion. What works for one player may not work for another. It's fine. I see the work these guys put in each day. Jeff McNeil told The Athletic, Guys are super professional around here. We go about our business, and everybody comes ready to play and does what they need to do. Brandon Nimmo told The New York Post, Ultimately, in this game, results matter. And I don't think anybody really cares about how you work. I think they all care. I think all they care about is what are the results on the field. So I know I've been saying that about the Phillies, but I do. Th- I did think this was a bizarre conclusion to draw and kind of objectively con- incorrect. Yeah, at the end of the day, the results on the, on the field are all that matters. But people do care about how you work. Yes, <laughs> like... because that impacts the results on the field. Like... I- uh, listening yeah. to that quote, that was Nimmo, right? Correct. Shocker. Um, <laughs> that was Nimmo saying that. Yeah. I'm just like that. What are you saying? The work that you do directly affects how you perform on the field. It is people do care about that. If you play pool and eat <laughs> pizza and show up, you say ready to play. Like, sure, you say you're ready to play, but you're not. <laughs> right. And. I don't mean to dwell on Fam because I just I don't care about him, and he's on the Diamondbacks now. But he really kind of emerges as a main figure in the collapse of the Mets, the way the story is framed. Uh, and and Rosenthal's puff piece on Fam from September seventh doesn't include any further info on the main thing that you know about Tommy Fam and his as far as like this kind of aspect of his of his career, which is the slap of Jock Peterson over a fantasy football thing. Which the headline of Rosenthal's story even references by saying, Beyond the Slap. I assumed it was going to be like, oh, hey, they're just friends and they fight like brothers and you, the fans, didn't have the context of that, so you overreacted and you're a bad person. But it doesn't. It only stresses how Vam has gotten over the slap, which, again, he was the doer of the victim. Which, again, he did. And how he was willing to make jokes about it after the Diamondbacks invited him to join their fantasy league, even though at the trade deadline, the Giants, the team Jock Peterson plays for, said they had no interest in dealing for Pham because they considered what he did to their player an act of assault. And Pham told Bob Nightingale the Giants were, quote, talking about pressing charges as a result of the incident. And he said, and I'm quoting, I'm like, go ahead. Assault for a slap? Okay. People do way worse. Okay. That's not how that works, man. There's not a judge who's like, okay, who has the worst crime of the day? You're the only one who's getting in trouble. (laughs) But my my point is... Fam may not be a clubhouse cancer once you get to know him or whatever, but he's fine dropping a bomb like that and letting his former teammates deal with the fallout. He's a guy who will say whatever he wants, excuse it by giving you the old, hey, I'm just being honest, as though that's what every situation calls for, direct and brutal honesty, and understanding when and where it should be shared, blah, blah, blah. And where Rosenthal seems utterly tickled by the fact that Pham is aware of his own reputation and seems to believe that's enough to redeem him. But there's a comment on the Pham story that I think really sums up the feelings here from a person named Nate B, who said, this still doesn't change what I think about him. The world is full of hardworking jerks that are knowledgeable in their craft. And you know, Correct. jerks are everywhere. 
you're going to run into them. Maybe you're one of them and you don't yep. realize it. Hello. But if you have the choice <laughs> of whether or not to, <laughs> to bring one into your clubhouse, I think the right move is still to not do it, no matter how self-aware <laughs> that jerk is. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, the Lindor piece, I mean, the Lindor, uh, the, uh, the fan piece made a little bit more sense to me once I saw, once the Mets piece came out, because they were obviously being worked on at the same time. Um, and there was obviously collaboration. There were three writers involved in all of them. It was Rosenthal, uh, Will Salmon, and the last name I'm forgetting. Um, but um, Will Salmon is the one that worked on both. And Both. I, it was uh, Ken Rosenthal and Tim Britton. Tim Britton, thank you. Um, and you sort of, after reading the Mets thing in full, I, I sort of understood why the fam piece was the way it was. And it feels like it exists to build his credibility. It's more of an angle than an article. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, you if you're pinning, if you're pinning your big Mets piece on a Tommy fam quote, and he's this big, he's this dude who's considered a clubhouse cancer who slaps people. Um, you're not going to, you're not going to make him the linchpin you have to put something out first to soften him and to make him seem credible. That's what this appears to be to me. Whether that was intentional or not, I don't know, but it definitely, this strikes me as we're going to rehab him as much as we can because you guys have to believe something that he's told us. Yeah, and it also goes out of its way to be like, yeah, you know, he was joking about being in fantasy football again with the Diamondbacks, but he takes fantasy, he takes everything seriously, and he takes fantasy football seriously. And you're like, I don't want a guy around who takes his job as a professional athlete as seriously as he, well, no, I don't, who takes fantasy football as seriously as he takes his job as a professional athlete. Those things are at different levels of needing to take seriously. So, like, you got to temper that intensity level or you're going to be a tough person to be around. In my view, again, this is kind of tough to defend at this point, but I really didn't bring this up to trash fam specifically because I really don't care about him. He's not <laughs> on the Phillies. This, this is the kind of stuff I was why I didn't want him on the Phillies. So it's fine. Uh, but this is just one more thread of a Mets season that completely came apart for them. It shows their lack of cohesion, what one veteran viewed as a lack of effort from a lot of position players, and ultimately fam's departure at the trade deadline was part of them signaling their surrender. So other things went wrong for the Mets this year too, starting with Edwin Diaz's injury before the season even started. But as they kind of zip up 2023 here, completely off target from where they wanted to be, did you get any kind of enjoyment as a Phillies fan watching the Mets face plant again this season? Or do you feel like they serve as more of a cautionary tale of sorts? They can be both. Both things can be true. I can highly enjoy them doing what they did while also appreciating that uh, they have served as a cautionary tale. You know, you some of it's about buy-in. Some of it's about luck. But you you read that story and you look at how the Phillies have the players have acted towards each other all season and you see a difference. You know, that's the one thing that struck me the most is that there's no togetherness atmosphere in in that clubhouse. It's everyone shows up, does their job and go home. And if that's your vibe, that's fine. Baseball is a job. And if you want to treat it that way, you are welcome to. If you're good enough to make it in the majors, please do it that way. But it doesn't necessarily serve the group vibe. You know, the Phillies are very much about being there for each other, sacrificing, holding each other accountable. 
That's not something I think we hear a lot about, but that goes hand in hand with how the Phillies act, how Castellanos acts. You know, it's not just about encouragement. It's about correction and making sure everyone is honest with each other. And they talk about that all the time, that they play for each other. That's that miss that's missing from the Mets. And you have to wonder how they could have put that together. Maybe it was Diaz's injury, but you wonder, because like before the trade deadline, they're um, in the article, they were like they were going to movies together. They were there. A bunch of them were playing golf to celebrate their last day together. I'm like, where was that togetherness weeks ago, months ago? Where, where was that? Because that's what you need in, in during a and baseball the di- season. The diagnoses which are coming out this time of year of teams that were built to win and then didn't are. Always kind of tough because I can't imagine there's a single version of this article because you saw this as well when Kevin Acey of the San Diego Tribune wrote a story about what's gone wrong with the Padres and why they can't win because they're another example of a team built to win and fell short, even though they're like weirdly hot right now and people are starting to think, oh, are they going to be? I don't. I don't no, think so, guys. Um, they're not. Point Probably. being. <laughs> He, uh, and, and the context of that was, I believe that San Diego writer, he doesn't have the best reputation among Padres fans already, mm-hmm. uh, and I believe that was earned, but however, they reacted to the story he put out as though it was a hit piece on Manny Machado, when in reality, the writer actually went out of his way to say in the article it would be uh, just like wrong, it would be like erroneous and unfair were the words he used. Uh, to say that all of the Padres' problems stem from Manny Machado. It literally appears, that statement appears in the article. So, mm-hmm. you know, already that softens the blow of a quote-unquote hit piece. Uh, and it also contains a multitude of direct quotes from Machado himself, who then, but then this is my point, later on, when asked about those quotes, said, oh, taken out of context, blah, 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 blah. You know, so you're going to get pushback on any kind of diagnosis of a team that has fallen well below their expectations for the year whether you were writing something they thought was true at the time or that it appeared in print and they were like i don't like how that looks so it's out of context even though that's not what context means um you know i, th- I think it's just it's a tough place to be because the players don't want to hear about how they've fallen short they're aware of that they don't want to they don't want a writer to come in and tell them what they've been doing wrong all all year long and I'm sure the Mets, you know, the Mets is kind of the same thing. You're going to see articles like this, and it's like, yeah, that, that stuff all played a role. But at the end of the day, as as teams, as fans of teams that uh, fans of teams that aren't these teams, all you can really think is like, boy, I'm, I'm glad that's not us. Because, mm-hmm. you know, there's a lot of ways it could have been. The Phillies are also a top five pl- uh, payroll. They were also falling, falling well below expectations earlier this year. And that didn't really get covered nationally the way the Mets did because they didn't spend the most money. And they weren't falling into, like, the worst uh, part of the league. They were just, they were underperforming. Uh, underperforming. They were scuffling. And, uh, you know, but it's easy to imagine, like, this article being written about the Phillies this year, too. I'm glad it's not. And I think there's reasons it's not. And I think part one of those reasons is yeah in the clubhouse there's not really a guy like fam who or, or machado who people are like choosing to blame for everything there's you know th- there's there's times when harper has been blamed for that there were times this year when maybe turner w- was was being blamed for that but they found ways to rally and they found ways to like their their chemistry has has always existed and when we say their vibes might be the strongest part of the team right now 
That's why that's probably true, because this team is able to recover and back each other up. I, I maintain that the one of the um, most <laughs> touching moments of this season was when Bohm let that ball go under his glove in Milwaukee, and the, yeah. the Phillies lost the game. And Stott and Turner just walked over to him, and Stott gave him just this little, like, clap because he was like crouching on the ground and he was clearly upset. And it was just a moment where you saw like, yeah, these guys back each other up. And, you know, I don't say in the Mets and Padres don't do that, but it's definitely when you read these articles, accuracy aside, you know, there's the truth lives somewhere between what the writers think and what the players think. You know, it's probably some combination of both, but something's wrong or they'd be better. Something's wrong or they'd be as good as they were supposed to be. And the Phillies are, are, are not that team. And, you know, I'm just I think I'm just really grateful of that because it can so easily go the other way. Yes, exactly. Completely agree. Like that that moment in Milwaukee. I remember watching that as it happened and being like, "Oh my god, Bohm looks devastated. He looked really upset with himself." You know, cuz it was it's something that can happen to any any third baseman, but he has been really good there and that was a catchable ball. So, he felt awful and was beating himself up clearly and they came over and were just like they didn't they probably didn't say much. I think one of them, you know, slapped a hand on his shoulder, but they didn't really need to do much. They were just there, you know, being like, yeah, we saw that. It sucks. We know that that's not who you are. You know, we might lose the game, but Mm -hmm. we know it doesn't mean you're a bad player. And that's, I think, what players fear. I feel like with every error and with every out, there's there are players who are just like, this is it. I'm never going to learn how to hit again. This is like I have not gotten a hit in two weeks. This is not I'm never hitting again. And then the floodgates just open, you know, you sort of have to, I like that the Phillies are there for each other like that and help everyone work, work together and through their own stuff. Like really the psychological aspect of the Phillies and what they do for each other to keep each other, you know, um, maybe not happy and thrilled all the time, but productive and like focused on the mission is I, I, I want to read books about it already. I want to read every book about the you know the inner workings of this clubhouse because it seems really i mean it just seems like it should be what you know every team does like this is what's happening in the clubhouse is right now like a perfect it's perfect chemistry between manager players pitchers and personalities yeah it's uh nick castellanos when he puts up an offer he can look like he's never going to hit a baseball again. Mm-hmm. And yet, he's probably been the Phillies' best hitter for the entire season. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, that's 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 the way it goes, man. It is. Uh, it, it can be tough to watch, but fortunately, we're watching a team that hasn't been tough to watch the entire time. Uh, do you feel like the Mets are in better shape now? They've restocked their farm with some prospects they got for Max Scherzer and Justin Verlander who, as far as I could tell, were universally praised as solid deals for New York. Mm -hmm. Former president of baseball ops for the Brewers, David Stearns, was hired to lead the next era of Mets baseball. And Steve Cohen is obviously still around to financially back any move they deem worth making. So, uh, I mean, do do you feel like we're going to be a lot more worried about the Mets by 2026? Uh, By 2026, yeah. I think that's for sure. By 2024, no. Uh, I think they're just about to fire Buck Showalter. And I don't necessarily Oof. think that's the wrong move altogether. Like these, the way that last season ended for them with that long, slow collapse and then losing in the wild card and having nothing to show for like 103 win season, that's tough to get over. And I think that also spilled over into this year. 
Um, yeah. So I don't think we have to be afraid of the 2020 formats, which is great for us. But the 2026 Mets will definitely be a problem. <laughs> when they have a new manager yeah, we'll and all that, you know, they'll be they'll definitely be frightening. They have a future. And by which I mean they have a blueprint for their future, which is something they've probably lacked in a couple of a couple of these seasons <laughs> so. where the expectations were high. And yeah, and they didn't have a plan. So this is a, it's an interesting twist. I think it was a twist a lot of people didn't see coming um, in the mid in the middle of the season. The Mets went from having like a 100 win expectation to being a team that's in full on rebuild mode. Uh, so we'll see what happens there. But right now, all we got to worry about is the next three games against the Mets that the Phillies will play this weekend or not play given the uh, terrifying storm that is only ratcheting up in intensity. Yep, as it heads <laughs> our way. I believe they are off on Monday, so they could just uh, make up games there. So we'll see what happens. But let's end this episode of Hitting Season with one of your favorite topics, Elizabeth. I don't know if um, anybody saw this, but a website called Artsy ran a story about your favorite Major League Baseball owner, Jeffrey Loria. <gasps> and I just wanted to read you the opening few paragraphs of a story on Jeffrey Loria that is not written by a baseball writer. <clears throat> few can claim having helped usher a team to a World Series baseball championship while also building a world-class art collection like Jeffrey Loria, the entrepreneur, author, art dealer, and former owner of the Montreal Expos, now the Washington Nationals, and Miami Marlins baseball teams. Loria first found major success in the art world at the tender age of 24 when he established his own private art dealing business, Jeffrey H. Loria & Company, Incorporated, which specializes in important works by 20th century masters. Since then, he has embarked on a multifaceted career, which he outlines in his new book, From the Front Row, Reflections of a Major League Baseball Owner and Modern Art Dealer. I've always believed in doing things quietly, Loria told Artsy. I don't seek attention. I kind of go about my life and do what I want to do in meeting people and meeting the artists and in my business, both in the art world and in the baseball world. <laughs> wow. I wanted, to, I wanted to get your take on Jeffrey Loria as art, artistic renaissance man and, and just guy who ran some baseball teams and they were really good and that's it. There's nothing else to that story to really focus on. <laughs> I love that this art this article is really something. I, I, ju I just looked it up now because I didn't know it existed. Thank you for telling me. Jeffrey Lurie is one of, You're welcome. to me, one of the most fascinating figures in baseball pre precisely because of this um, and that he just had no real, I don't think he really had a lot of baseball acumen. He was an art guy who wanted to make more money uh, owning a baseball team. But uh, I find it, I find the whole thing hilarious. This is him trying to, um, defend himself from having a very rich father because this is the guy who went to Yale he has a rich dad he comes from money he is an art dealer so um, after completing his education Loria worked as an assistant buyer for a newly established art buying program at Sears the department store he soon found himself traveling across the country to buy works such as prints by Pablo Picasso Henri Matisse and Rembrandt and even commissioned work by Salvador Dali in 1965, he established Jeffrey H. Loria and Company, Inc. and become a became a private art dealer. My father backed my efforts with a $2,000 loan, he recalled. In the book, that seed money was... Really brought himself up by his bootstraps. Yep. That huh? seed money was all I needed. No, it wasn't. To who paid for your that education, all idiot? <laughs> all I needed 
I was just a bunch of free money away from yep. achieving my dreams. $2, and what do you know? $2,000 in 1965. <laughs> Let's find out. <laughs> my dad, what do you know? My dad came along and supplied me with the money I needed to be the art dealer I'd always dreamed of being. <laughs> Like, is there a more Yale sentence than that? <laughs> As of 2013, uh, let me see. The purchasing power of a one do- of one dollar in 1965 is equivalent to purchasing power in 2019 to thirteen dollars and seventy cents. <laughs> oh boy! Well. Let's hope Jeffrey Loria's forays into the art world. Oh, and his new book, you know, that we're, I guess we're doing free promotions for. Uh, his None of you are going to buy it. Flop. And honestly, neither am I. And I think the guy's hilarious. So I, I hope his book flies off the shelves the way good players flew off his team's roster right after winning the World Series. I, I hope that that happens for yes. him. I have one well, quick thing before do it for... we... Wait, I have one quick thing before we wrap sure. up. Sorry. Um, breaking news as we were... Um, as we were podcasting here, uh, Sean Doolittle, uh, Nationals pitcher, Fred's pitcher, Athletics pitcher, all around great guy, uh, has retired from baseball after 11 seasons. I just wanted to send my best to him, uh, our best as a podcast, because he's an awesome guy, big into labor rights and stuff like that. I'm excited to see what he'll do um, after. You should find him on uh, Twitter and wish him the best, because he's just a, a really cool guy, and I'm glad he got to do what he wanted to do in baseball. Very true. Um, very good person, Sean Doolittle. And honestly, I'm glad you said that because we've been doing an imp- like a kind of informal trip around the NL East in this episode, and I didn't have any national stuff. And now we can just you know pin that to the end there as our go. little nationals mm-hmm. bit that Sean Doolittle is retiring. So that's perfect. Thank you very much. Well, that'll do it for this episode of Hitting Season. Uh, as always, to get access to our new episodes, just head over to billypencom slash Season. And for extra Phillies bonus content, head to hittenseason.com slash Patreon, uh, where you can get some more unfiltered views on current Phillies goings-on. Uh, and as they head into the playoffs, we'll keep you supplied with plenty of Phillies commentary in the weeks to come. Uh, I'll just say, over at Baseball Prospectus, I have a story up from yesterday in which I characterized the voice in Nick Castellanos' head. Because uh, numerous other voices. (laughs) The revelation that that voice exists and what it could mean moving forward. As far as the Phillies go, we'll have you covered here on Hidden Season, so keep on listening. I'm Justin Clue. And I'm Liz Rocher. From WHYY and Billy Penn, this has been Hidden Season.